Let me tell you a story. You may not believe me. I barely believe it myself. But I can't dispute what my soul knows. Peter! John! It's all true. Come see this! Everything he said. The tomb! Every impossible detail. It's empty! It's all true. Loses its footing. You have me confused. I don't know him. And we stumble along our way. I said I don't know him! forgiven. What was once dead has new life. What was once old has been made new. What was once finite has been made eternal. May we remember and follow in way. Let's talk together about what happened that first Easter Sunday morning. I want to welcome you uh, to Easter at Southwinds. We're so glad that you are here. And I think all of us are aware that this past Sunday, uh, we saw one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. 
Uh, Tiger Woods won the Masters after years of moral scandal, after years of relational train wrecks, after years of injury and incredible physical pain. After all the experts said it could never happen, his golfing career was over. It had been like this for a decade. It was never going to be the same that it was before his greatest days were behind him. And then he came back. He came back. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but so many of history's greatest success stories involve amazing comebacks. For instance, there was a politician who lost his first eight elections. He failed in every single business venture he attempted. He had a severe nervous breakdown, and he struggled with depression his entire life. And yet he came back, and he became the greatest president in American history, Abraham Lincoln. And then there was a businessman who dropped out of school at 14. He went bankrupt in his first business, and he got fired from a job because he was told he lacked all creativity, just didn't have it. He also had a nervous breakdown, and yet he went on to win 22 Oscars while he created America's greatest entertainment conglomerate, Walt Disney. Imagine you're the guy who told Walt Disney you don't have any creativity. (laughs) Then there was a, a woman who recently told a Harvard graduating class, I had failed on an epic scale. My marriage imploded. I was jobless. I was a single parent. I was as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain. I was the biggest failure that I knew. And yet this woman, she went on to write the best-selling children's book series of all time. Her name, of course, is J.K. Rowling. Now, we all love comeback stories, but Easter really is the greatest comeback story of all. Jesus Christ's comeback from death to life is the most mind-blowing, earth-shattering, universe-altering event in all history because Easter changes everything. It changes everything in your life. It changes everything in history. Everything is different because of Easter. Now, today we're going to be exploring together how Easter gives us hope, and specifically by addressing the greatest fears and challenges that we all face, because what happened that first Easter 2,000 years ago really can change your life today. Now, I want to, I want to give you, as we get started, what I consider to be one of the most profound statements about how Easter changes everything in our lives. And it it comes from the great American pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. And I love this statement, and I think you will too. Go ahead and write this down on your notes. Jesus' resurrection means that our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost, and the best things are yet to come. I mean, just, just think about that. This is so very true, and we can see it today, but on that ver- very first Easter Sunday morning, Jesus' disciples didn't know it yet. They couldn't see it. All still seemed lost. They still thought Jesus was dead, but everything changed when they saw Jesus. And we're going to be looking at some different parts of John 20 and 21 today, And I first want you to see kind of how John describes the entire group of Jesus' disciples. And we see this before, after picture, and it's in John 20, verses 19 and 20. Here's what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So those disciples, they go from fear. I mean, they're locked in that room. They're terrified that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them too. They go from fear to faith. And then they rock it out of that room and they turn the world upside down with a message that is proclaiming the truth that Jesus is alive. They will not stop saying it. Jesus has risen. Jesus is alive. This changes everything. How does that happen specifically? Well, in these two chapters, John shows us uh, how Jesus changes everything by focusing in on three people, three individual people who are struggling with three different things related to the death of Jesus Christ. And their stories are going to be my my three points today because if you ever struggle with loneliness, if you ever struggle with doubt, if you ever struggle with guilt or, or remorse, you're going to find these ancient stories amazingly relevant. Uh, We'll begin with Mary Magdalene's story, and her story tells us that because Jesus is risen, I can know that God is always with me. Now, Mary was one of Jesus' closest disciples, and Jesus changed her life. Before Jesus found her, she was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus delivered her from those demons. And that's really all we're told. But we can imagine the behavior and the life that she had before. Maybe she was like some of those people that we've all seen wandering around. They look dangerous. Maybe they're shouting profanities at people. No one wants to get near them. And I imagine Mary was that kind of an outcast because there's a hint that we get in her name, Mary Magdalene. Now, Magdalene is not a last name. It actually means from Magdala or from Migdal. And this was a fishing village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was known to be a poor and kind of disreputable place, like the low-rent district. People back then didn't have last names. See, you were identified by your family relationships. And in the Gospels, we read of people like Mary, the wife of Clopas, Or we read about the Apostle John, John, son of Zebedee, or even Jesus, Jesus, son of Joseph. But unlike any of those people, Mary was called Mary of Migdal. It was sort of like saying, Mary of the docks. No one would claim her. She had no loving family to care for her. She was all alone. She was rejected until Jesus found her. And from the moment he found her, from the moment he delivered her, he had always been with her. But then on Friday, he died, brutally crucified on a Roman cross. Just imagine the loneliness and the abandonment that Mary felt. See, Jesus was the only one who could deliver her, and he had delivered her from the domination of those demons. He had set her free, and her life was changed, but now he's dead. Just try to imagine the thoughts that raced through her mind. You know she had to wonder, are the demons coming back? Jesus was the only one who'd cast those demons out, and now he's gone. Are they coming back? I want you to say something out loud with me in just a moment. Are you ready to do that? I want you to say, God is with me. Would you say that out loud? God is with me. 
Now, I want you to turn to someone next to you and say, God is with you. Go ahead and say that to someone you're sitting by. You know, someone really probably needs to hear that today. God is with me. And at this moment, Mary just cannot see it. She is devastated. And then her grief and devastation gets worse because she goes to the garden tomb uh, where he was laid. It's early in the morning. She's going to anoint his body with spices, and his body is missing. All she can think is that grave robbers have desecrated the tomb. In verse 14 of chapter 20, John tells us Mary is so grief-stricken that she doesn't recognize the risen Jesus when he stands right next to her. She's crying. She's weeping. John tells us she thinks he is the gardener because, of course, who would think this must be my friend risen from the dead? I mean, no one would think that, right? Verse 15 Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And then in verse 16, Jesus says one word to her. One word that changes her life trajectory. One word that alters her destiny forever. One simple word. Mary. Not even Mary Magdalene. That label that tied her to her past, that is gone. Jesus just says, Mary. And John says that when she hears his voice saying her name, she knows he is alive. She knows that he will never leave her. As he says to the disciples, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And the great message of Easter, I am proclaiming it to you this morning. For you and for me, it is the same. Jesus knows you on a first name basis. Jesus will never leave you either. God is always with me. I want to show you a little picture of what that kind of Love looks like. This is a true story about a man named Dave Reaver. Dave served in Vietnam, and during his time of service, 1969, a phosphor grenade exploded in his hand and covered him with burning phosphor. He was burned over 90% of his body. His face was horribly disfigured. They sent him home to Texas to a burn unit where he, he shared a room with another burn victim. And it just got worse because when this man's wife visited him, Dave watched as she took off her wedding ring, put it on her husband's chest, and said, I am so sorry, but I just cannot deal with this. We are over. And she walked out the door. Dave said his roommate shook with sobs for two days. And two days later, he was dead. Dave steeled himself for his own wife's reaction. Three days later, she visited him, and he had his eyes closed because he just knew she was going to reject him the same way. And he heard the door open. He heard her heels clicking on the linoleum floor as she approached his wife, Brenda. Now, Brenda is a follower of Jesus. And Brenda also has a really good sense of humor. Here's the first sentence she said to him. Frankly, Dave, in some ways, this is an improvement. (laughs) 
And then she said, I want you to open your eyes and look at me. She said, Dave, I told you I loved you, and I will always love you, and I mean it, and I'm never leaving you, so let's get you up out of that hospital bed, and let's get you out of here. And within a few weeks, Dave had recovered enough to be sent home. See, that is the power of a love that you know will never leave you. I want to show you a picture of Dave and Brenda. They're still together to this day. Uh, This is taken not too long ago. And do you know what that's a picture of? That is a picture of the unconditional love that the living Jesus has for you, for you. You know, in a room this size on a day like this, I know there must be some people who are here struggling with grief, struggling with hurt and wounds, struggling with loneliness. And I want to tell you, I want you to hear the living Jesus is here today. And he is saying to you, I know you on a first name basis and I will never leave you. And when you believe that it really does change everything, you know, I can come back. Because God is with me. God's with me. Maybe you're here today and that's not what you're struggling with. It's not loneliness or abandonment for you like it was for Mary. Maybe you've come to Easter and maybe you're struggling with some doubts about, about this whole resurrection thing. Maybe you don't believe it's true or you're not sure. I think you're going to relate to Thomas's story. That's the second one. Thomas's story shows me that because Jesus is risen, I can face my doubts and I can grow in faith. Now, I want to be honest with you. I think, frankly, that Thomas kind of gets a bad rap. We have a name for him, right? What do we call him? We call him Doubting Thomas. But who wouldn't have doubted if you had been there? I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. These women say that Jesus appeared to him, to to, to them, and then then all the other apostles say Jesus appeared to them, and Thomas wasn't there. I mean, he didn't get to experience that, so he must have been thinking, this is impossible. This cannot be true. And he sounds very much like a very modern person. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And what Thomas really is saying is I put all my hope in Jesus and my hopes got dashed and it hurts so bad. I am not going through that again unless I know it's really true, unless I know it's not some sort of myth. A few days later, Jesus appeared. We read these words in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 20. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas bows before Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I want to show you a painting that I really love. It is called the incredulity of St. Thomas, and it's a Caravaggio. And I just love in this picture the surprise on Thomas's face as Jesus guides Thomas' hand into his wound in his side. And some of you may be getting a little queasy right now, I understand. Um, Just look down and take a deep breath. Um, But it's just such a beautiful picture of of that moment of surprise and wonder and awe. Now, we're going to get to the rest 
of Thomas's story in a minute. But right now, some of you are probably thinking, well, that's great for Thomas, but I wasn't there. What about me? What about my doubts? Well, I want to say to you, the good news is God never wants you to just have blind faith. Now, there's always a leap of faith involved. I mean, otherwise it wouldn't be faith. But I think if you study the evidence, you will come to see that the the leap is much shorter than you might have thought. You see, there are some historical realities that that all uh, honest historians understand to be the case, and I think the resurrection explains those better than anything else. Three historical realities the resurrection explains. We could actually talk about a lot more than these, but we'll focus on just these this morning very briefly. And the, they all start with the letter E. Go ahead and write this down. The first one is the empty tomb. And historically, we know the tomb was empty. Even the opponents of Jesus agreed on that. That's what we know from the documents. And if it wasn't true, they would have gone to the tomb. They would have produced the body, but they couldn't because it wasn't there. It was gone. And that's just a dot you have to connect to something. Second, look next at the eyewitness accounts. Jesus appeared, the New Testament tells us, to many, many people. We know from the records he appeared to over 500 different eyewitnesses. And when you, when you kind of drill down into this, how do you explain some of these? First of all, uh, just look at this. Look at the women that he appeared to. Now, that may not seem significant to us in the 21st century, but in the first century, this is remarkable for this reason. Women's testimonies then were considered totally unreliable. Their testimonies were not admissible in court because they believed women were hysterical and prone to lying. So, for example, like if you were on trial for murder and your wife's testimony could exonerate you, she couldn't testify in your behalf because they considered that testimony invalid because she was a woman. Here's the point. Let me ask you this. Why would the gospel writers invent a story that wasn't true and then put women in as the first eyewitnesses? That would be the best way to undercut the credibility of the story in the culture of that day. You see, the only reason back then that they would have included women in this role was this. That's what happened. They were just telling the truth. And then you can look at the testimony of James. James was one of Jesus' brothers. And it's a very interesting little feature in the Gospels. We see the Bible tells us that James uh, and his brothers, the brothers of Jesus, they thought Jesus was crazy because he was making claims to be the Messiah. A quick show of hands right now. How many of you have siblings, at least one? Would you just raise your hand? Uh, all of you pretty much do, except for a few of you lonely onlys that are out there, you, you know. Uh, but most of us have brother or sister, and we've grown up with them. And here's the next question. How many of your siblings ever, any time in your life, irritated you or made your life miserable? Would you please raise your hand? And if they're here with you today, just look at them for a moment to remind them of what they did. Now... With that in mind, I have another question. What would it take for your brother or sister to believe that you are the Savior of the world and the Son of God? (laughs) You'd have to, like, rise from the dead, right? That's what Jesus actually did. Now, the Bible doesn't detail his appearance to his brother James, 
But I like to think it was something like, hey, bro, I'm alive. Who's crazy now? (laughs) I don't know, you know. But what we do know is the Bible says that instantly James turns from being an opponent of Jesus to not only a follower of Jesus, but a leader of the followers of Jesus. And not only a leader, but one of the very first martyrs who says, you can kill me if you want to, but I cannot deny what I have seen with my own eyes. That's James. I mean, how, how do you explain the changes in so many people's lives? And it just keeps rippling out. Who would die for a lie that they knew to be a lie? And yet so many of the early Christ followers did. And then we, we know about Saul of Tarsus. What about him? Historically, Saul was a vicious persecutor of Christians. He dragged them off to prison. He approved of their executions. And then suddenly, overnight, he becomes history's greatest proponent of the Christian faith. How do you explain that change? Oh, Paul explained it like this. The risen Christ appeared to me. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then you can think about all the apostles and just realize this. Did claiming that Jesus Was alive make them rich or famous? No. It made them persecuted and dead. Why would they do that for a lie? But we know that they died without any fear. And again, these are the same guys who started out Easter Sunday locked in a room because they were so terrified. But they now said, we're not afraid anymore because they saw Jesus' resurrection as a sort of, maybe you can call it preview of coming attractions. They believed that Jesus came and he was the first to rise from the dead. And that meant that they too one day, because they had placed their faith in him, they too would one day be resurrected in glory. And so they could die in absolute confidence without fear. How do you explain that unless they had seen the risen Christ? And then the finally is the emergence of the church. We know historically that This movement burst into history. It had to have some kind of trigger for it to happen instantaneously like it did. Uh, There's a famous historian whose name is N.T. Wright, a world-class scholar, two PhDs from Oxford. He teaches early Christian history at the very prestigious University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He has written uh, so many books. He's he's just known to be one of the leading scholars in the the early history of the church. And uh, He says this about the emergence of the church, quote, As a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Now, in a short time like we have this morning, I don't have uh, the time to just dig into everything. But if you will look at the bottom of your message notes, you will see a list of some books for further investigation. And I've, I've listed them there kind of in the order of their, of their complexity. So if you start at the top and work your way down, that's probably a good way to approach it if you haven't explored this before. But I want to say to you, you owe it to yourself not just to listen to what skeptics say, but also to explore what many very intelligent, very scholarly Christians have to say about Easter and the resurrection. And if beyond this you have questions, I want to invite you to ask me or any of our pastors. We have many leaders and and people in our church who would love to do our best to make the faith that's changed our lives 
as understandable for you as we, we possibly can. And there's a number of ways that we do this ongoing in the life of our church. Next Sunday, uh, we're starting the beginning small group. We do this at different times throughout the year. And, and uh, it meets at Sundays at 11 a.m. in our church conference room. It's a place maybe uh, that you could go to find out what it means uh, to follow Christ. Well, let's get back to Thomas. What happened to him? Well, after his doubts are resolved, this man known as the doubter, he ends up traveling farther than anyone else for his faith because history tells us that Thomas went all the way to India to share the good news that Jesus is risen. And I find it so cool that in every one of our services this morning, there are people here who are direct descendants of the people that Thomas first told about Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing to think about? Thomas, Thomas' story shows me that my doubts do not have to derail me. I can face them. I can deal with them. And I can grow in my faith. Well, finally, third story. Let's look at Peter's story. And Peter's story shows me that because Jesus is risen, I can know God forgives all my sins. Amen? This is so very important. Well, uh, let's illustrate it this way. Can we take a survey? We do this sometimes at Southwinds. I call it theology by voting. Um, And uh, what I'd just like to ask is this simple question. How many of you would say that you have sinned at least once in the past year? Would you like to raise your hand right now? And notice the people around you who are lying. They don't have their hands up. Um, The point is simply this. We've all sinned. Amen? And every one of us, because of our sin, struggles with guilt at some point. You see, the reason we struggle with guilt when we've sinned objectively is because we stand condemned before God. And in ourselves, we know that there's nothing that we can do before God by ourselves with our guilt, especially when we've done something that desperately, deeply wounds other people or, or something that damages us. See, that's kind of Peter's story. The night before Jesus is tried, Jesus tells all of his disciples, you will all betray me. And Peter brashly stands up and announces in front of all of his friends, I mean, think about this, Jesus, even if all these other bozos let you down, I will never betray you. But just a few hours later, Peter has denied even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And the Bible says the third time he does it with an oath, and he calls curses down on himself. And that means that that he says something like, may I be damned to hell if I'm lying, but I swear to God, I don't know that man. And you're like, wow. He's doing this while Jesus is being tortured. And the Bible says in the moment that he denied Jesus the third time, Jesus turns and looks across the courtyard and looks straight into Peter's eyes. And it says Peter runs away, weeping bitterly at his failure. No hope. Uh, This week, I think we've all been saddened by the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Dan and I visited there about four years ago, and there's just so much loss in this, so much destruction. And you see something like this, and you think, can there be any comeback? That's how Peter felt. 
As John chapter 21 begins, it's kind of an interesting thing. Jesus has appeared to all the disciples. They're all waiting, John says, to see Jesus again, but not Peter. Peter says to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And what that means in a word is he's quitting. He's quitting his job as the leader of the disciples. He's going back to his old job, his old life as a fisherman. Turns out, as he does that, he's even a failure at that. He can't even catch any fish. Uh, John chapter 21, verse 6 says, Jesus gives Peter this miraculous catch of fish, and then Jesus cooks breakfast on the shore. And then the risen Jesus begins a conversation. Look at verses 15 through 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he says, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. It's like he's saying, you know my heart, Jesus. You know what I'm like. I mean, I'm not going to overpromise here. I know I'm just a big failure, Jesus, but I do love you. I really do. You ever feel like that? You see so clearly your failures, but you also know I love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I I failed him, I know, but I love him at the same time. And Peter's kind of saying, that's where I'm at. And Jesus again responds. He says, feed my sheep. Now, I'm going to show you how amazing that little exchange is. Because in those verses, Jesus has three present tense questions and three future tense assignments And not one word about Peter's three past tense failures. This is huge. Because when I fail, the question that I imagine Jesus is asking me is not, do you love me? A lot of times it's, will you try harder next time? Or I hear Jesus saying, Will you try harder not to be such a big disappointment to me? I, I don't even know why I died for your sins on the cross. Ever feel like that? See, the question, though, that Jesus is asking you is not questions like those. Jesus is asking the same question he posed to Peter. Do you love me? Because that's what matters most to Jesus. He came to establish a relationship with you, and he made that relationship possible by dying on the cross for your sins. See, maybe you're here right now, and maybe you feel like Simon Peter. Maybe you've kind of benched yourself, and you know, you've made it here today to Easter Sunday, but you kind of are mainly feeling, I just have failed Jesus so many times. I am such a loser. I love Jesus, but I'm not a very good follower. And maybe what you're imagining is that Jesus is just very disappointed in you. Let me again tell you the great news of Easter. On Good Friday, Jesus carried all of your sins and all of your failures to the cross. And he nailed them there, and he paid for them there, 
through his sacrificial death. And then on Easter Sunday morning, he stepped out of the tomb, and he is alive, and he now calls you to follow him into your brand new life. And he's saying to you, do you love me? And if you say to him, I do love you, Jesus, then he says, all right, I have a mission for you. Let's go. That's what he's telling you. And maybe the risen Jesus has called you here today for that specific reason to remind you it is not over. And it's time for you, it's time for you to get back in the game, to serve him again. Doesn't matter what your failures are. He loves you and he knows you love him and he forgives all of your sins. Amen? See, the risen Jesus appears to Mary. He appears to Thomas. He appears to Peter. And they follow him into new life. Here's my last question for you. What's your story? What's your story? You see, for 2,000 years now, Jesus has been changing lives because he is alive, because he has conquered sin and death. I was thinking this week about some of you. Over my 16 years as serving as your pastor, I have sat across a desk or in a coffee shop or in a living room so many times and listened to so many comeback stories, so many tears, so much joy. Some of you here today have told me how God brought you back after you destroyed your marriage through adultery, men and women, and you're here today. Some of you here have shared with me how God restored your life from the slavery of addiction to substances or to certain sins, and you are here today. Some of you here today, you have shared with me how God is walking with you each and every day as you face mental health issues, and for some of you, it's recovery from abuse in your past, and you're here today, and God is bringing you back. Some of you have told me how you've stolen money and you were caught and you thought your life was over, but God forgave you and God restored you and God gave you a comeback. So many stories. But maybe that hasn't happened to you yet. Maybe this morning you find yourself in a cave the way Jesus was at the beginning of Easter Sunday morning. Maybe for you it's the cave of despair and loneliness like Mary. Maybe for you it's the cave of doubt like Thomas. Maybe it's the cave of failure like it was for Peter. You need to know that even in that cave, Jesus is with you. And I think Jesus cannot wait to surprise you. I think he cannot wait to tap you on the shoulder and say to you, hey, I'm alive. I live. You know, one day, Jesus spoke some very famous words. We find them in John chapter 11. Here they are. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he asked a question, do you believe this? And so I want to ask you that question. This Easter, do you believe this? Do you believe this? When you do, when you believe this, I am telling you this morning, you can come back. Your life is not over because Easter changes 